happy 2024, fellow adventurers. You are back with the Virtually Agile podcast and the Season 7 opener. We begin the year as we intend to continue it with a bang. And in today's episode, you'll hear from one of the original Agile Manifesto authors as we discuss the ambiguity of the Agile Manifesto and how we believe it should be used. You know how this works. If you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? It's the best way to get each episode as it lands. Enjoy the show, folks. Hello, hello, hello. You are back once again with the Virtual Agile Podcast. This is Chris Stone, the Continuous Improvement Coach. And today I am joined by one of the co-authors of the Agile Manifesto and a self-described Agile Wrangler. <laughs> hello, John. How's it going? Hi, Chris. Good. Yeah. I, yeah, Wrangler. I forgot about that. That is a... If that translates, yeah, it's like uh, trying to wrestle things to the ground and uh, wrangling wild steer, even though I would never do that in my life because it's super dangerous. But yeah, thanks for having me. Reminds me of Steve Irwin. Reminds me of Steve (laughs) Irwin, just like wrestling crocodiles. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a, a, a lot of upside. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with you, John, give us a little bit about you and who you are and what you're about and what you're passionate about. Sure. Well, I'm an aerospace engineer by training. So like the first half of my career, cruise missile engine, research and development and testing and altitude chambers, learned uh, so much there. Moved on to flight simulation, aerodynamics, models, building. Like you might be familiar with the F-14 from the famous movies, Top Gun. And I put... We had a, a 50 foot centrifuge, so we could put smacky with full G forces, just like in an airplane. So I put many a pilot, many a Navy pilot through F-14 flat spin. I won't say training, but it's kind of how to get out of a flat spin and familiarization to realize this is no joke, like it actually happened. So that was a fantastic part of my life. And so doing consulting um, in that company as well for defense department. And then that led me to founding my own company because they decided to close the bases and move, move elsewhere. And I didn't. And you know, some of the consulting work that we did was building IBM's next generation manufacturing execution system, which ran all of their factories to build computers from large servers to PC companies. So that was an amazing, <clears throat> let's say first project to have coming out of the shoot. So I've been building software, doing, doing consulting. Of course, the manifesto and and the ensuing different companies I work for building again, you know, production software. I still currently code production software for Blazemark, which is it's a, for firefighters. So it's kind of my side gig since 2006, helping save lives and and property and things like that. So I like to say that it keeps me somewhat honest because I still do BDD, TDD, and love. Yeah, matter of fact, it's like the the best thing in the world because it's it's legit requirements from you know users that mean a lot to me and at adaptivist i've uh, been here about close to five years and we've been pushing the boundaries in terms of trying to figure out better ways to help teams actually learn how to work better and you know be successful at coming up with ways of working that work by doing the work. So we can talk more about that later because it's a, a bit of a mind t- tease, but it's super important to understand. 
Absolutely. Well, I've learned some things about you already that are awesome. I'm a huge fan of uh, Top Gun. Something that our listeners won't know about me is that I regularly will get on my knees and serenade people to the Top Gun theme. You know, you never close your eyes anymore. When I, and like, and that, that bar scene with uh, yes. Tom Cruise, with Maverick and, and Goose. I love that. Yep. <clears throat> and it's also a great question to ask in a, in a retrospective, you know, where are we on the highway to the danger zone? You know, what, what risks do we need to look out for? Or where have we lost that loving <laughs> feeling, right? What, what just doesn't work for us? What are we not loving anymore? Oh man. So, great tips. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, if you watch it with me, especially the first one, yeah, I might pause it and geek out about all the stuff it shows about the aircraft. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's awesome. Great movie. And as both you alluded to, it's, them, uh, yeah. it's about the individual and the interaction and the continuous discovery of better ways of, of doing things. I know you've, you've been speaking recently about the, the deliberate ambiguity in the Agile Manifesto. Tell us more about that. Why is it deliberately ambiguous? Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to say we, we crafted it that way. <laughs> They're like, oh, wait, we should be this. I think it reflected, I, I like to say when we, we met at Snowbird, we left our egos at the door. I was certainly a, a, a youngster you know, among giants, but I was very vocal because I had kind of created my own lightweight methodology doing defense department work. And then I kind of was mentored by Peter Code and he, I, he and I and some others founded TogetherSoft, which was a UML modeling tool. So it was, How should I say? Suddenly I just lost my train of thought. Hit me up again. I got sidetracked. I was talking about the deliberate ambiguity and you mentioned it wasn't thank you. intentional the, that you checked your egos at the door. Yes, thank you. So yeah, which is pretty amazing because there were a lot of egos in the room, but checking our egos at the door and looking back at the, the page where the values are, I noticed and this wasn't too long ago that I, that I noticed this is one of the things that I really push might sound funny, but I have a, a slide that I like to show, you know, it says, be humble. Even when you know, you're right. Kind of, you know, I like to joke around, but it's, you know, humility is so important in our industry and also so lacking sadly, but it's natural. So if you look at the top, it says we are uncovering better ways. It's active voice, right? It's not past tense. It's not like we figured it out. And that's, that's a sign of humility. And then the whole, we value, you know, the, it's, it's not to say we don't value the things on the right. A lot of people confuse that. It's no, it's deliberately a range of certainly in, interactions and, and people over process and tools, but I'm a process nut. I built and sold tools love tools, but it's, it's in your context, you need to dial each of those kind of values into the right place. So that's the key. And that's, that's also humble in that we didn't try to state something in absolute terms. And that's something that I think a lot of people gloss over. So I, that's where I like to just point out that, that those little aspects, even though they're subtle, are all about putting the kind of put, putting the onus back on the, the reader and the doers to dial it in for their world and what they're doing currently. And it's not a, it's, you know, it's not a, a fixed, a fixed item. So that's where I think the humility shows 
very well in, in the manifesto's value page. So it's, it's left that way to enable people to interpret it in their context and apply it accordingly. Yeah, which a good friend of mine, Daniel Markham points out, well, that's easy for you all to say because you were successful software developers. Okay, true. But nonetheless, uh, what we do is not build brick after brick after brick, right? Most of the hard things we do are in the, in the realm of the complex. You know, it's uncertain, it's changing, it's volatile, and you cannot apply fixed process and even fixed tools probably to, to things that you need to innovate and create and, and develop. So it's, it's, it's very critical in my opinion. To have to hold this in not only in mind but in your heart that that you need to figure this out for where you are and constantly evaluate it. That's why for me, agile is the hardest. Even though it's the simplest concepts, it really is the what I would say is the the hardest thing because you can't relax. There's always ways to get better. There's always ways to evaluate. Did this work like we thought it would work? And this is why I have myself pivoted in my own approach towards continuous improvement, because in my experience, and it's, it's far less experience than yours and many of the other giants in the, the industry in the world, in my experience, people don't buy agile. They're not, they're not trying to get to agile as a destination and, and customers, they don't want agile. They want the, the experience, the things that saves them time and money and energy and makes their life better. And I think if we overfocus on, on agile. For me, the key is continuous improvement, right? And, and that's where it's right at the beginning of the manifesto is we're continuously discovering better ways. And that's why I say it's about continuous improvement because it doesn't matter which industry, which company, which person you are, everyone wants to get better. Everyone wants to improve in the pursuits of their particular outcome in their context. You hope, <laughs> yes. I've, I've learned that sometimes these, these absolute thoughts, are, you know, maybe everyone doesn't. Uh, like sometimes I see behavior that seems to, look like not everyone wants this, but then you actually have to dig into it, get to the people side, get to the interactions and try to figure out why, why, why is this happening? And it doesn't seem like we're moving towards what I would consider value, you know, because to improve implies you have a direction and a, um, something to measure yourself by. So, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's uh, driving towards that, that type of, of a mentality. You know, single piece flow, continuous improvement, but don't be a freak about it. Right, that's that's the key. You need to you need to collaborate, understand. You know, a lot, a lot of times you can sense if this feels right or not, and people have learned to suppress that. But it's so important to sense because sometimes when you don't know, and most of the time in complex things you don't know, even though people fool themselves. Oh, we just need to break it down more. Oh, we can make an estimate that they fool themselves into thinking they know, but a lot of times you can feel it. Does this feel right? And use that as a, as a sense for take a step, not a big one, like not one over a cliff, but take a step in a direction towards continuous improvement or towards what you think value is. And then sense, are, are we going in the right direction? And trust me, you'll, you'll be able to act on that. If you learn how to develop this, it's taken me decades. But John Turley, a colleague of mine at Adaptivist, he's really helped me see there's a lot of secret sauces that that I've learned to make. They were implicit. And part of the skill is to try to make things a little more explicit so you can act on them, talk to them with other people. 
things that you might do intuitively. Well, what is that? And, you know, you probably experience it as most of us do. So, yep, continuous improvement's a good, good strategy. And as you've highlighted, it's, it's often that we're working with the, the complex, the, the things that have a lot of unknowns around them. And that's where that kind of Kinefin style model of, right, we need to sense first, we need to try something, we need to take action, sense, then respond, rather than having an answer predetermined or a, a solution in our minds, because that fixed approach probably won't work when you are dealing with this, this complexity. So it's the ability to respond to the situation. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is, well, I think some of my good fortune and just how I've grown as a person has been, been fortunate where I've been able to, to act sometimes, you know, maybe others might have thought that that was kind of risky, but if, if you're going to make big leaps in the complex, if you can't become, at least this is the way I think how I do it is I'm comfortable with not knowing I'm comfortable with ambiguity. I'm comfortable with, I often have, you know, the, the, the analogy of two people on your shoulder competing and being able to hold multiple perspectives is very uncomfortable for a vast majority of like an expert type mindset who thinks everything is knowable and has an answer for everything in a process, right? That, that, that kind of when I, I have to actually be very aware of who my audience is because I can freak people out or I can look weak, like to an expert. If I'm, if I'm debating myself or having us look at things from multiple perspectives, I can see, well, come on, John, you know what to do. Just, just tell us what to do. Um, so that's, it's a real, I think important skill to, to begin to develop to, to allow yourself to be comfortable. It sounds weird, but to be comfortable with kind of being uncomfortable and not knowing because that's where the magic happens. I often call it the, you know, we have this fuzzy idea and I've been using this for decades, even with like object models, you know, it's like a model and it might be fuzzy and I hold it up and you look at it from different angles to see if it's still working. And I feel the same thing about big fuzzy ideas that could be kick-ass in the marketplace. You. If, if you try to turn those into making estimates and break it down and this giant, all this upfront bullshit, you're likely throwing out the, the part that could have been the, the, you know, the most impactful ideas and things like that, because you're uncomfortable with it. And you think you have to be able to know it all up front. So I just, you know, one thing to try for people that I encourage is to, to not be so certain and not be so absolute about what's truly unknowable. Don't delude yourself. And I also often talk about try to do less than you think is necessary and see, see if that works because so many people do far too much at every stage, you know, and that's the ego, right? It's, it's the lack of humility where you, you know, you, you think this is going to be valuable, but you, you don't actually know it. So you just keep doing it. And especially when we compartmentalize and have silos, it's, it's easy to fall victim to this. And it's human, right? It's a sunk cost fallacy. You invested time and energy in something and you don't want to let go of that. So you persist and you keep going on with it. And we, we have these biases and these assumptions that we make and it's just human, but it's, it's the awareness of those and then challenging ourselves. It reminds me always of a VP. You know, a lot of people think, oh, MVP is this. MVP is that 
And then they end up making this huge, complex, <laughs> costly thing yes. that takes a long time. Yes. Because they, 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 they believe that if we don't get it all in now, it won't ever be done because that might be their experience. Yeah, if we don't get it done now, it never gets done. So we've got to do it all. And as you say, it's focused on the simplest, say, the simplest solution. What can we do that gives us enough information to learn? And then based on that learning, we can adjust and we can do more or less, you know, amplify the good things, dampen the bad things. And I try to con consider it more of a, a minimum viable experiment. What's the, the smallest thing we can do that gives us the most amount of information that validates that we're doing the right thing? Yeah, I always say I can outsmall anybody. Like you'd be shocked at how small of, of a initial version of something that I showed a customer, even though I knew, you know, we're going to go further and we've talked about, we've even mocked stuff up to go further, but it takes, you know, it takes guts sometimes to show something that's almost humorously too small. And the challenge I, I always, I always tell people is you can always add more. Oh gosh. Yeah. You want that next thing that we, that we talked about? Of course. Yeah. I'll, yeah we'll build that. Thanks. You know, but in meanwhile, we got something out there and you know, see if you start using it. And I have a funny example. I won't go into details here, but yeah, it's humorously small. And the, the flip side is if you build too much, you'll never get that time back. And and it is part of your, like the sunk cost fallacy, like that, you know, you did, did this giant requirements document, might as well do all the features. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. And you'll probably be late and you probably won't have, you know, half the features won't be necessary. So it's, you know, 80, 20 rule is, you know, put something out there and get some feedback. And, you know, it's, I don't know why it's so hard, but part of it is because sometimes, you know, I'm a value nut. So it, I want everybody on the team to understand where we're headed, what outcomes we're looking for. Uh, you know, we're not order takers. We're not just here to code up the feature, just like the customer asked or the product, you know, you know, name your role in the organization. No, th that's just a, that's a request for a discussion. And let's talk about what, what are you looking for? What, you know, let's, let's think about, can we maybe do 20% of the effort and give you 80% of that? And let's test that because that might be enough. Because we can always add, you know, like I said, we can always add more. But I have seen, to your point, one organization, I remember they were they were late on this feature. So I kind of joined the team, started looking at it, you know, what they're doing. And it was astounding. I, I, I don't remember the details. There's some kind of thing that you could do that maybe adjusted the view of maybe some reports or something. And... And then they had an idea that, oh, well, we can actually create templates, reusable templates for things that you want to, and I'm like, OMG, you haven't even put the freaking feature out there to see anybody wants it. You held up delivering at value and you thought of, oh, wouldn't it be great to create templates so that they could create different things they want to do and reuse, like what kind of ego is that, right? To think that number one, do they want the first thing that we built? And yet, yet alone, maybe they want it so much that they're going to want this fancy schmancy way to control, right? I mean, I, my jaw probably hit the floor. I mean, people are trying to do their best, but but the the challenge is a lot of times you have these compartmentalized. A feature comes in, and then it does goes through these processes with different people that don't actually talk to each other. So many times, in in when we're working with companies we bring our cross-functional team together to talk about, you know, ways of working. And that's the first time some of them actually 
oh, you do that, you know, kind of look, looking down at the virtual table. So, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Small is really good. Challenge yourselves. Yeah. I've got a personal example of this from recently. I, I created my OnlyFans and I, I say OnlyFans with heavy jest, like I didn't release a, a platform to share nudes of mine. I called it Only Chris to play heavily on the fact that it was a bit like creating a community where people would get extra stuff from me. And I didn't build oh. anything at the beginning. I just spoke to 50 people and said, hey, thinking about this, is this something that you'd be interested in? And at that point I was just getting the data. Yeah. And enough people said, yeah, I'd be interested. So I was like, cool. All right. So what I'll do is within a week, I had like a, a promo about it. And I created the baseline, the first few subscription tiers and I shared it and people started subscribing. So I was like, okay, that no product exists yet. I'm the product. And I guess it's fortunate that I have a, enough of a presence online for people to trust that if I buy into this, I'm probably going to get something useful. But that was just me rapidly prototyping something before I'd even built something. And now if I was doing it the other way around, I would have built something, spent a lot of time doing that first, and then thrown it out there and been disappointed when perhaps people weren't interested in it. Because I could have right. invested a lot of time in the wrong thing. Right, exactly. And that's that you were able to suppress your ego, thinking you knew what people really wanted and you tested it in the cheapest manner possible. Yeah, to me, I don't know why that's hard, except there's tons of careers involved when you see the giant pipelines in these enterprises and everybody thinks they have the right answer and everybody does the thing thinking it's the right, you know, it's just, it spirals out of control pretty fast and then you got all this shit going on and actually no value. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, anyway. So back to the Agile Manifesto then, we see a lot of dogma with it, right? It's you are not Agile if, or this is on the Agile Manifesto and you're not doing that. How do you believe it should be used? How should people be using the manifesto? Yeah, I, I think one, one of the fun things about the, the Polish group I was working with, the Agile community, they, they did this, another translation. There already was an original Polish translation, but they wanted a new one. I guess they had some issues with the, the existing one. And part of it was fascinating to hear questions about some of the principles, you know, the, the values are, you know, are one thing, but you know, the, the principles, some of them are, you know, what did, what did you mean? Or, you know, so there may be some, some, some reasonable things to have conversations about as a, as a, let's say your team or your organization. But I think the, since uh, Daniel Markham challenged me on on the the point that yeah, what's a new person supposed to do with the the, the four values? Like, what, what what am I? What does that mean? Like, it meant a lot to me. You can imagine doing Defense Department work. At least three of those four bullets were pretty. <laughs> like, I'm making sure that 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 crap gets in there because you know I did stupid. Hey, I know. Let's do a year long contract and we'll put in a proposal and we'll put a money in there and estimate all this stuff. For research and development, it's not even like we knew exactly what we we're going to do. Now we're going to actually spend a year exploring this stuff, which automatically says you don't know what you're going to do. Anyway, you know, I, I created a, almost a defense mechanism for you know I'm a taxpayer. Let's not let's not waste our time and effort. So what's the what's the best thing we can do? So the values themselves, I think, are are a way to to help you gauge maybe things you might be doing, whether it's, you got process, you know, a lot of times people have process police and they, they lose sight of the, of the, the, the value that we're trying to actually, you know, they don't know where we're going, but by God, we better do the retro, right? 
or, you know, we better have a backlog or we better, you know, just get nuts about process. Or, you know, I see tools like a lot of people bash Jira. It's a little similar to bashing agile and then telling me all the things that you're doing with it that aren't agile. You know, I've, I, I witnessed a, a pretty humorous helping this team that's supposed to do some agile transformation. We went to this company and developers couldn't even drag the issue that they just got assigned into in progress. And I was like, oh, surely you must not know how to use the mouse. Let me go help you. You know, the, you know, the young whippersnapper. And, and I'm like, okay, like, who the, I remember going back into this agile transformation room. Like, you know, I've gotten a little nicer since then, but I was like, man, who the hell configured Jira? Cause it sucks, right? Like, yeah, don't blame the damn tool, blame whoever freaking configured it. And, and, and to his credit, the guy sheepishly puts up his hand. That was me. You know, when I explained the problem, I'm like, why in God's, you know, like you've never used Jira before, right? You didn't even just use it out of the box. You, you pre-configured it and you made it almost useless for, for the team. Like that's, you know, it's an, I won't say it's an innocent mistake, but it's a mistake. And that's, you know, like that is tools. <laughs> that's not individuals. In there, you know, I'm, oh my goodness, that's the tool suddenly taking the front seat, like, ah, makes my head explode. So I don't know. I kind of, that's how I think you might be able to use it is, you know, how much documentation are you doing? I'm a nut about documentation and process and tools, but not over, you know, actually getting something done. So that's how I think you can use it is just test yourselves. Where are you on the spectrum maybe for each of the values? I did see someone share a retrospective format recently that was deep diving into the Agile Manifesto and it was using prompts that were probing, you know, how can we be more individual focused over process focused? How can we ensure we are focusing more on simplicity rather than doing everything? And again, I don't think enough people consider that lens. So I, I believe it's it's a great way that the manifesto is a great way to check yourself, right? How are we matching up to this? Yeah. How how are we ensuring it fits our context, but also how could we be more focused on these things and less focused on the wrong things? Yeah, that's a great idea. Cause that's that's the best I could think of when Daniel challenged me on what are you supposed to do with this? You know? And yeah, I think that's that's a great, great idea. I would I would hazard you might do, it might take, take a while to do each value. I, you know, like, I don't know how long that would take, but it's, it's, that's why I say agile is frankly, one of the hardest things for, for me to do because you're constantly having to ask yourself and, and make those, those micro judgment calls. And that's why, you know, whether it's a junior engineer sitting in on a meeting with a client and of course you know management is going what you're why what can't you just hear him john and then you tell the devs what sure that might work but no this is how you <clears throat> you bring more people into the fold you help more people learn what it is i expect everyone on the team to understand whether it's the product idea or a feature set or a feature what we're trying to do because everyone's got a brain on, on our team and the more people can make those micro judgments themselves, the better off we are at being agile. And that's where I think all of this, the ideas behind taking a process and ossifying it falls into the trap of thinking we can break this 
it's the factory mentality. It's the Taylorism crap. It's all that bullshit that, that still plagues, plagues us. And yes, I'm not saying, you know, once, once I kind of get a, a framework going for, for a, a product app that some apps, some of the features are, are pretty cookie cutter and just, you know, we have a pattern, everything's consistent and don't need any UX, don't need it. You know, it's just boom, boom, boom. But the, the overall approach needs to be much more, you know, I, I think thoughtful about, can I get to where we want to go, whether I'm the UX or QA, QA or the dev or whoever, faster and cheaper and you know can i can i get some value for for less effort right that whole be lazy i often use the be lazy mentality uh, which really just means yeah can we can we do things that are smaller than we think and get and achieve value and check our hypotheses sooner but people can't do that if they're not given the license to do that so to speak or if there's not that culture and there's not the the continual expression of where we're trying to go so you have to often repeat and talk about and really, well, it's in Jira. Okay. Right. You know, that's, that's, we're not making hamburgers, right? We're, we're anyway, that's, that's kind of how I, how I, I think of it. And, and that retro approach would be great. Yeah. You've reminded me of a, a quote and I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it basically says that something along the lines of companies are built on 21st century technology with 20th century hierarchy and structure using 19th century mindset for management and leadership. And I thought, hmm, that seems very familiar. Sadly, yeah. I mean, it's this, again, it's the illusion of knowing, because we're, we're taught a lot of absolutes throughout our life, you know, starting in elementary school. You know, one plus one is equals two. It's true most of the time. But yeah, we... We often talk about it, <clears throat> uh, a unit wise approach is what we fall prey to. That's kind of what, what, what that alludes to is if, if you, if you let that kind of that, that mindset infiltrate, what, for one reason it's easier, right? Cause you can, you can delude yourself and, and, and think of things are much easier to control. They're much easier to measure. <clears throat> you know, if, if you turn things into these, these stepwise, you know, turn it into the complicated instead of just the complex, you know, there, there are advantages for some parts of the business, but not necessarily the customer not necessarily the bottom line. And yeah, it is, it's this weird, it's the weird world that, that we've started stepping into is, uh, cause I, I think this came from, I was talking to trying to help some people understand agile, you know, like, well, kind of where's my brain at? And I said, look, it's not like before, you know, Scrum was invented or Agile was invented, people weren't successful. It's like, oh, thank goodness for the Agile manifesto or for thank goodness for Scrum. And now we can finally get some things done. No, people were having success before. And I often say it's, it's highly capable people will create a process as you know, if you and I are working together with a handful of other people and we're doing something, we know we're, you know, kind of a destination and we start to see some patterns form and we might you know, agree to some, Oh, this, this kind of a process works pretty well. Let's write it down. And, oh, maybe we could automate this. Oh, let's build a tool to do that. Cause it sucks doing it by hand and right. Good, capable people will create process and they will create tools, but it's the, that's the, one of the reasons that we 
we work with people like I don't, you can't learn agile from a book. Can't even learn agile from training. Although I have some, some immersive type, you know, one day, you know, fun. We just did it in Lisbon in September, a way to try to immerse and, and experience agile. Cause I say, you have to experience it. You have to be in the flow of real work to, to kind of get it. So we only work like a, you know, like to me, training's pointless about this sort of thing. So we try to work with teams doing the real work because when you didn't have a process that you could you know, implement and you had to do it yourself, like, like the little example about you and me working on something, it's doing the work will, you know, will, will create a, pro, a way of working while we're doing the work and we'll adjust it based on the ways that are working. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's the word work is too many times almost humorously, but not really like that's that's that gets lost when suddenly the process is, quote unquote, one size fits all slam it into place right now. It's <clears throat> the, the reason it's hard is we need to continually be able to evaluate is our way of working actually working to do the work and and reject the things that aren't working and continue the things that are working. And that's where I think we get we go off the rails is that's too hard for a lot of management, you know, the, to think of that, that constant reevaluation of what we're doing and the ability to, to color outside of the lines, not just be, you know, a process freak, you know, have process police for a fixed process that might not actually apply so well to the current context we're in. And that just reminds me how else the manifesto could be used. You could literally put it in front of the whole company on like a, a large town hall style session and imagine like a virtual whiteboard and you can say, Hey, of these principles, which ones are we most impacted by or, or, or which ones are we living the least? Right? And you get people to vote and then that, that narrows down to where we need to focus. And then you could begin exploring, right? So how could we ensure we are exhibiting that value more in the future? And then you're basically identifying systemically the things that are holding that company, company back from being agile. And then you design experiments with those people to see what you could do next. What's the smallest thing we could do to try and address that problem? Yeah. Now here's a, here's a fun, subtle tip and trick. It, so it's, it's talking a little bit about how could we do something differently in the future, which is often what we're, you know, server crashes, you know, well, we want to have, you know, some future unicorn world. Well, we can talk about that. And it's, it's almost like we can talk about the work, but that's not the work. So a funny twist to what you're talking about is still like using, like you said, identify some area that, that, that we think is, is the most impactful. Cool. <clears throat> Instead of asking us a, 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 a very logical question, like, well, how can we, you know, be more interaction first instead ask, why are we doing what we're doing now? Because the, the first question about, you know, how could we work this magical way in the future is, is hypothetical, but rather what's causing us to act this way instead, because that's, that's the, re that's the actual challenge is, oh yeah, what the hell? Why, you know, why does somebody do something that, you know, if I walk in and look at it, I wouldn't say this probably, well, that's a pretty stupid thing to do. Like why? Why'd you think that's going to work? Right. Or <clears throat> why did you do it for all eight teams? Why didn't you just try one first and see, you know, and then maybe, you know, so 
asking how, you know, why something happens the way it happens. And, and the, the challenge here is most people will start to give glib answers like the, you know, and, and so you need to be a little, you know, the old five whys or just keep picking a little bit, pick, pick, pick and get at, yeah, why are we not working in a, and, you know, why are we working this way, which is sort of against the, one of the principles or one of the values. And then you might actually find a cause, something. Now, to your point, now you have something to take action on. Oh, yeah. We don't really have a lot of conversations around here or they're very shallow or something. Yeah. To build on that, I think it's also great to, let's say you've got eight teams, right? And you're asking about this topic. Let's call it simplicity. To find out which team is shielded from that as a problem. So which one is not facing this impediment was not held back by this and saying, okay, why, why are they protected from this? Why are they in a little bubble that enables them to do this? And that can again, unlock you know, a way forward. And then a further one on that is rather than saying, Hey, why are we doing it this way? Or how could we be better? Say, how can we make it worse? Let's, let's kill it. Let's, let's make our customers hate us. And then, yeah, that can be quite fun, right? It's like, oh, we could, we could do this. We could do that. And then you're basically using reverse brainstorming to look at the negative and then you can work backwards and say, okay, we did this, they'd hate us, but if we did this, they'd love it. Okay, we'll do that. And that can be a good one way of looking forwards too. Yeah, that sounds funny. A lot, lot, lot of times like those crazy ass bugs where I'd be like, if we had to make this as a feature, I don't even know how we'd do that, <laughs> right? You know, like those kind of, yeah. So it is a little bit, the reverse psychology can sometimes be uh, humorously applied yet actually it helps spring forward radically different thinking because it is so, you know, preposterous to ask a question like, yeah, that's what would be a great way to piss off the customers. Oh yeah. I know have a completely different UX everywhere because <laughs> it looks like three different teams designed this because, oh yeah, three different teams designed these damn it part of the apps. Come on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, how right? could, yeah. How could we make the customer hate the product? How could we, yeah make more people cancel our, ser our service? How could we communicate the worst way as a team? How could we feel less connection to our, our colleagues? How could we have no sense of purpose and direction and what our work is? There's, there's so many yeah, ways of using right. this. How can we overbuild? Explores. How yeah. could we overbuild? How could we yeah. you know, make more defects happen? How could we focus less on quality? There's so many ways you can do it. And it's just a fun way of identifying a path forward. It's just, and yeah. also it, it uses our natural bias towards negativity. We spot problems more easily than we do solutions or, or, or answers. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. How can we use tools more? How can how we be more yeah. tools focused? Yeah. Right. How could how we can... make Jira the center of our universe? Right. Yeah. How can Jira run our company? Yeah. That is, I'm afraid all we have time for in the interest of simplicity, we need to wrap things up, John. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and insights. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Oh, I suppose LinkedIn. I have, I mean, I do have a, a long running site called technicaldebt.com, but I'm not, not going to say I update that very much. I should, I should be less lazy and do stuff there, but yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and you'd be shocked people. I help people all around the world. It, all it takes is just ask and, and I want to say even some, you know, quite, quite often 
for free. Matter of fact, mostly for free. Like I, yeah, we do do consulting and adaptivists, but yeah, it's, I love learning about other people's situations and, and their teams and just chatting with them maybe an hour a week or something like that, or every month or yeah. So hit me up and find me just like you did. You found me. Of course we meet, we've met in person too, but and I'm sure we'll yeah. see you another conference. So you heard it here, folks. Hit up John if you want to chat about Agile. Again, that's all we have time for. So until next time on the Virtually Agile podcast, of course, if you want to hear from other people like me and John, then you know what to do. You got to press that follow or subscribe button to catch every episode as they land. Until next time, don't stop believing. Thank you, John. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things Agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.